Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. I have a dear friend who is uh, very passionate about movies and film and uh, all things cinematography and creativity. And he and I have a relationship where we love to argue and we love to debate. We love to go back and forth. One of those things I shared in, I don't know why I shared this in the first service, but I'm sharing it again now. Uh, One of those things we debate is whether or not if Superman was placed in an impenetrable cube, would he die? Thank you. <laughs> and I'm, I'm always like, well, there is no such thing as an impenetrable cube for Superman. Therefore, he would not die because it's impossible for him to be an impenetrable cube. Unless, of course, it's laced with kryptonite. And then, of course, he'd die. And then he'll come back and be like, well, I've stated that it's an impenetrable cube, whether it's in kryptonite or not. So, therefore, it is impenetrable. Would he? Anyway, we go back and forth. That's just the relationship we have. So, one of the things that we often debate is movies because he loves movies. He's passionate about film, right? And so he'll say to me, what's your favourite movie? Like, what's the greatest movie of all time? If I ask you that question, what is the greatest movie of all time? What, are, what do you give me? What responses have we got? The greatest movie of all time. It's a wonderful life. Shadowlands. Great. Dr. Shivago. Fantastic. Risen? Not seen it. Anyone else? Shawshank Redemption. The castle. <laughs> Temple of Doom. It's funny, isn't it? So, so there's movies that we think are the greatest of all time and then there's movies critics think are the greatest of all time. And my friend is very much one of those movie critic guys. And so when we have this conversation, I say the greatest movie of all time is a movie called Rudy. And Rudy is a story of American football. It's a story of this lad who just desperately wanted to play college football for the University of Notre Dame or Notre Dame. You know, and his whole life was about wanting to run on the field for Notre Dame University. And I don't want to spoil it. It's based on a true story, but I will spoil it. Basically, the last possible opportunity, in the last few seconds, the entire stadium starts chanting his name and he gets this opportunity to run on and play. He's, it's the underdog story. He wasn't given a scholarship, none of those things. And he is to this day the only person, it's based on a true story, only person in Notre Dame history to ever be carried off the field and he literally only played 15 seconds. Um, Such was his work ethic and the way that people respect. So I love that movie. I'm like, that's my kind of movie. That's the the best movie of all time. And every time I say that, Peter just looks at me and just shakes his head. He's like, David, Shawshank Redemption, Schindler's List. You know, Casablanca. Like a one, he's like, you can't say Rudy's the greatest movie of all time. And here's his justification. He's like, a great movie is not just a great story. It's about how that story is told. What makes a movie great is not the story. It's about how that story is told. And we need to understand that when we read the scripture, Right? Because there's lots of great stories in Scripture, but actually sometimes the power of Scripture is not just the story, but it's the way the story is told. And especially as we come to this portion of Scripture, this idea that Jesus declaring, I am the light of the world, this I am statement, it's not so much 
the story that's told or the, the conversation that we're about to dive into, but it's the way the author constructs it that is so brilliant. Like, yes, it's the inspired Word of God. Of course it is. But you're going to see something in a minute that the way he operates is incredible. And it's very much like a great director casting a movie. It's very much like the Passion of the Christ, for example. Who's seen the Passion of the Christ? So one thing I love about the Passion of the Christ, it's telling a particular story of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, yes? And it's pretty full on, yes? And if all it did was just sit from the beginning of the garden all the way through to the end without any breaks, you'd sort of leave that space. You already leave it feeling heavy, but it would be, it's intense. But actually what the creator of the passion, uh, the, the passion of the Christ does, throughout the movie, he just jumps out of the core scene, like jumps out of the Garden of Gethsemane, for example, and casts to this scene of Jesus as a carpenter making a chair. You know what I'm talking about? And it does that, and they're having a laugh, and then it jumps straight back into the garden. Now, why does the director do that? Is it just a random thing just to give us a break? Or is there meaning to it? And a great movie, like The Passion of the Christ, every scene change has meaning. And the meaning in the scene change is actually to illuminate, actually to take us deeper, to explain something about the scene that's being played behind it. You with me? And as we come to this text, we just read chapter 8, verse 1 through 12. But this passage, this whole thing doesn't begin in chapter 8. It actually begins in chapter 7. And it goes from the beginning of chapter 7 all the way through to the end of chapter 8. And really what it is, is just one long conversation. And it specifically, it starts in 7 verse 1 as Jesus goes to this thing called the Festival of Tabernacles. Everyone say tabernacles. And then he goes through tabernacles and this whole discourse or conversation in verse 37, where it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, dot, dot, dot. That's where this thing is bookended. 7 verse 37 all the way to the end of chapter 8. It's one conversation except for chapter 8, verse 1 to 11, which seems completely out of place. It's set at a different time, a different day, different group of people. It's comp- it seems random, so much so that in your Bible, there's probably a note there saying the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses don't have this in there. Yes? There's a whole lot in there, contextual criticism, you would call it, where people will say, man, this is from a different place. It, it, it doesn't really belong here. But I want you to understand that whether it was in the earliest manuscript or not, it does belong here. Because the author in constructing this is putting this in here to give meaning and explanation, to reveal the fullness of the conversation that is happening in chapter 7 to the end of chapter 8. Does that make sense? Are you with me, Rowdy 1030 congregation? (laughs) So this beginning of chapter 8 is a lens. Yeah? It's not a mistake. It's not just a random story. It's a lens. And as you look through this lens, it will give understanding to what is a long, like 90 verses of complex conversation. 
And we could go through 90 verses, verse by verse, and unpack it all. Or we could look at 11 verses and draw out what's happening in the 90. Yeah? Which one do you want to do? <laughs> Let's do the 90? No, I'm joking. So... Jesus is at the festival of tabernacles. That, let's, let's, let me set the scene. Let me paint the picture. Go to Leviticus chapter 23. Woohoo, Leviticus. Who loves Leviticus? One hand in the whole room. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 23. This is Israel have come out of Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They have been led in the wilderness And the Lord is giving instructions on worship to Moses. And in verse 33 of chapter 23, the Lord says to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins. And it is to last for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. So seven days, and then there's an eighth day. The eighth day is a closing special assembly. Do no regular work. That's the festival of tabernacles. Now, why does God institute this? Why Israel coming out of Egypt, does God give them these worship practices? Why the Passover? You know, why these different festivals? All of it is so that they would have a tangible thing to hold on to, to remember one, who God is, and two, what God has done. Yes? We do the, the Passover to remember that God brought them out of slavery. Tabernacles, you do tabernacles because you have literally been brought out of slavery into the wilderness. You have been led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire, light, by night. You are living in tents or tabernacles. You are dwelling in little places all through the wilderness. God has has nourished you with manna from heaven. God has nourished you with quail from heaven. God has, has watered you with water from rocks in the desert. And God is saying, I don't want you to ever forget who I am and what I've done. This is vital for you for as long as you are on the earth, as long as this nation exists, you need to remember this. And so I'm going to institute a festival, a week-long worship. And on the last day, the great day, a sacred assembly, you are going to perform two specific rituals or ceremonies which will ram this point home, right? Now, before I get to those two ceremonies, I'm going to just paint a little, can I paint a little bit more? You see, this happens, this ceremony happens at what you would call the autumn equinox or equinox, depending which way you want to put the emphasis. And this is when you have the same length of day and the same length of night. It's just before the days grow shorter and the nights grow longer It's just at the time when the the summer drought is ending and the winter rains are about to come, which means it's about to be that time where you've celebrated the fact that God has given us harvest. It's now been barren, but He's about to water the seed so that we can have harvest again. It's also prophetically speaking to the 
to the, the, the prophecies from Zechariah and throughout the prophets basically saying that, that the light is going to come, that the, the river of life is going to come from heaven. Like it, it speaks so richly into Israel's dependence upon God and the promise for Israel's future. And so God institutes this festival of tabernacles, rich in symbolism, rich in reality around them. Don't forget now these two things on the eighth day, the great day, one being a water libation ceremony. Now, what the heck is that? That is where the Jewish people, after parting for seven days, not parting, partying for seven days, like it's been a thing. And on the last day, it's night. And it's not night like Adelaide night where there's streetlights everywhere. This is Flinders Ranges night. It's pitch black, the stars are in the sky and what they would do, thousands upon thousands of Jews would take their, their torches, not, you know, head torch, none of that. Like this is a, a stick with fire, a lantern. They would have this stick with fire and they would sing and dance and there'd be these, these torches ever and they'd go down to, to the water and they'd have a huge bowl and they'd fill it up with water and they'd come into, in Jesus' day, the temple and they would pour out the water in the presence of God. Remember, it's still the drought. The water, the rain hasn't come. It's this symbol of saying, we know you are the one who brings about the rain. You are the one who's going to meet our need. You are the one who sustains us in dry times. You're the one who watered us in the desert. Like, this is who you are. And so we bring an offering to you, declaring the nature of who you are. And the second one, on the same night when the water would pour out, they had 16 massive bowls held up on huge stands and they were filled with oil and they had garments for wicks and they would light these 16 massive torches, massive lanterns, if you will, all around the temple courts. Now just put yourself, just put yourself, this is important that you're there. Put yourself there. If you have to close your eyes, close your eyes. Put yourself in this moment. The temple is a limestone building. What happens when it's pitch black and 16 enormous firelit lanterns all around the temple? What does that do when it hits the limestone? It illuminates. It's like a modern day light show. And what it means is that all of Israel now, with their little torches in hand, singing and dancing, where do their eyes go? To the torch? Or to the temple? The temple, because the te it's like the, the light lights up the presence of God. It's saying, this is who He is. This is the one who drew us out of slavery. This is the one who, who led us in the wilderness. This is the one who brought us through the Red Sea. This is the one who is the I am. And he's come to dwell with us. It's crazy, right? <laughs> this God would dwell with his people. And so the, the temple would be illuminated, not just the limestone, the gold. Like if you've read, you know, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, the sheer amount of gold in this place. What happens when light hits gold? That's the eighth day. That's the day when Jesus 
In John chapter 7, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and a loud voice said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within. Do you, you realise what he's doing right there? Just picture it. There's Jesus at the temple. They've just poured out this enormous water ceremony and he's like, I'm the one who will bring living water. I'm the one who fulfills all the prophecies. In fact, I'm the one who gave you water in the desert. I'm that guy. <laughs> How do they respond? Some of them are like, wow, yes, you are. You're the Messiah. That's what he's saying. I am. You're the Messiah. And some of them are like, heck no. And they get angry. <laughs> like, there's this debate which begins to happen. And so it rages on from 737 to the end of chapter 7. And then if you leap over chapter 8, verse 1 to 11, and you land in verse 12, who's with me, it says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It is the exact same scene. It is the same moment. Nothing has changed. He is still in the temple courts at the Festival of Tabernacles, and he is declaring with the light all around him and the temple illuminated behind him as all of Israel is looking upon him and he says, I am the light of the world. It is amazing. He's like, this, it's about me. All the prophecy, it's about me. God coming to dwell with you on the mount, to give you his law, it's all about me. The one who led you through the wilderness, guess what? That's me. The one who took you through the Red Sea, guess what? That's me. The one who led you across the Jordan to inherit the promised land, guess who that was? It's me. He's saying, I am the light of the world. I am the one who rescues and redeems. I'm the one who takes you out of slavery into freedom. I am the one who will give you fullness of life. And it's so rich because all through Scripture is this incredible symbolism of light and darkness and what they stand for. You know, light in Scripture is, is hand in hand with truth. Like God is true. God is truth, but God is light. It's like God is love. They're all connected. And darkness, on the other hand, darkness is this picture of deception, a lie. You know, they walked in darkness. They walked in the lie of the land around them. And it's this idea that when you believe a lie, when you live in a lie, you are living in darkness. And ultimately, believing that lie will lead to death. It's the Genesis 2 picture, Genesis 3 picture. Genesis 1 picture, that God, there was nothing. There was, there was waste. There was darkness. There was no truth. And then all of a sudden, what does God do? Speaks, and because he is truth, when he speaks, what's the very first thing that happens? Light. And when light comes into play, you can have life. Because you have no life without truth. And God is true. Are you with me? It's just like, it's so rich. And so Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, but what he is saying deeper. And if you read the discourse, this is where you'll get lost. Because one minute he's saying, I'm light. And the next minute he's saying, I'm truth. And, 
And then whom the sun sets free, they're free indeed. Like the truth will set you free and you can read it and be like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. Or you can jump to the scene change and you can go from the discourse to the narrative and read 11 verses and go, oh, that's what you're saying. Because this story that interjects this long discourse is a story about humanity, it's a story about light, and it's a story about darkness. And it's a story about what happens when light encounters darkness, when truth encounters lie. It's so powerful. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to jump in to this story. And I just want to show you a couple of quick things that Jesus is saying about himself. By Jesus declaring that he is the light of the world, that he is truth. What is he saying about himself and what is he saying about us? First and foremost, the first thing that he's going to declare here is that truth, or he, because he is truth, is the one who can reveal what's real. Truth always reveals what's real. What do I mean by that? When I was four years old, we had, um, we had a sleep. It must have been mum and dad's anniversary or something like that, because I'm one of five children. Not many people who have five children get to have sleepovers at other people's houses, because no one wants five children sleeping over at their house, right? But for whatever reason, we found ourselves at our friend the Harris's house. They've got a bigger house. And so all of us had a sleepover. And I was sleeping in my friend Daniel's room. He was my age. And he had two older brothers who also shared that room. Big room, right? And so I've gone to bed on a little rollout mattress in the middle of Daniel and Phil and Luke's room. And I'm lying there. And when I went to bed, it was like this big room with heaps of space. And when I was a child, I was one of those kids who loved to sleep with the door open because the door open let in a little bit of light. And I remember they shut the door and there was still a little bit of light around because, you know, I was four. But it was like, man, this, you know, this is a bit darker than I'm used to, but it's okay. So I went to sleep in this big, vast room. Now, I remember waking up and I'm going to get, I got shivers in the first service. It's coming back to me now. I remember waking up in the middle of the night and just it being pitch black. Like I'm talking so black, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And so I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm like, <laughs> like, this is really, really dark and I'm not used to this. But I composed myself because I was like, it's okay. It's a huge room. You're in the middle of the room. Just, you know, get up, feel around, work your way to the door. It'll be okay. And so I'm like, okay, I'm in the big vast room. And as far as I could tell, that's where I was because it was pitch black. But then I tried to move. And as I moved my arm, I couldn't get more than that far and I hit something which started to freak me out. And then I moved my leg trying to kick and I was like, oh, I can't move that either. And then I tried to roll and my shoulder hit something. I'm like, oh, like so scared. And what I didn't realise had happened is in the middle of the night, I'd rolled under my friend's bed. (laughs) And not only had I rolled under my friend's bed, but my friend's older brothers thought it would be hilarious to take everything in the room and block me in under the bed. So pillows, like rugs, 
toy boxes, just everything you could have to trap me under the bed, thinking, this is a hilarious joke. Dave's under the bed. He'll wake up and won't know where he is. Anyway, so I'm under the bed and I wake up and I'm just, in my mind, because it's so dark, I just imagine, like, I believe that I'm in the middle of the room because that's where I went to bed, yes? But all of us, but I'm trapped. So I'm freaking out. And I do what every young child does, which was politely ask for help in an extremely loud, irrational tone. (laughs) In other words, I cried as loud as I possibly could. And I will never forget the moment where in my screaming and crying, I could hear sort of movement and rustling and maybe uh, an aggressive word (laughs) in response to two older brothers. But I'll never forget the moment where I saw a crack of light pierce that darkness. And all of a sudden... I knew where I was. I understood my predicament. I realised what was real. I wasn't in the middle of a room. I was stuck under a bed. And everything began to make sense. But not only that, with the light, do you know what else came? A hand. The hand of the father grabbing me by the arm, pulling me out, giving me a cuddle and saying, it's okay. This is precisely the point that Jesus is making about light and darkness in this passage. That light reveals our condition. Light reveals what is real. Darkness has this way of entrapping us. Like we believe the lie. We believe the lie of of the serpent in the garden saying that, that, you know, we could be like, God, if we do it our way, that we can make God in our image as opposed to recognising we're already made in His image. And so we don't need to set ourselves up and create a God in our image. We actually get to bow down to the God whose image we are made in, who loves us and is for us and is with us. And that is light. And in that light is freedom. It's not, you know, the devil comes and he says, can't you eat from any tree? It's a lie because there was only one tree they couldn't eat from. What they've forgotten is they've got the freedom of the entire garden and all of it is good. All of it is amazing. And we believe that, it's, that the truth is a restrictive thing instead of understanding that the truth is the freedom that we long to live in. And the moment we buy into that lie and believe the lie, all of a sudden, that's when we walk in darkness or restriction. That's when we are bound to sin and death. Are you with me? This is the picture. And so truth reveals what's real. And Jesus standing here at the the festival of tabernacles is declaring, I am truth. I am the one that you are looking for. I am the one who brings you freedom. And it's exactly what we see in this story. That truth reveals what's real. Watch this. I've got to show you something. It reveals what's real in the woman, in the Pharisees, And in the believers, go to chapter 8, verse 31. This is the discourse. To the Jews who had believed him, everyone say believed him. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Listen to this answer. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. 
excuse me? (laughs) How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. These are people who had believed him. It's a picture of the church again that we, these guys, otherwise they're going, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been free. We don't need a saviour. My, you know, I accumulate that just by the nature of who I am. No, no, you need a reliance on Christ is what Jesus is saying. And they're saying, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves to anyone. Where are they? They're at the festival of tabernacles celebrating what? Freedom from slavery. We've never been slaves to anyone. Uh, duh. You were a slave for 400 years in Egypt. Actually, right now you're under Roman oppression. So you're living in darkness. You think you've got the freedom of the whole room, but you're trapped under the bed. And the only way that you can come into the freedom of what God has created for you is to stop trusting yourself and to start relying upon me and see the light. Like you need to know your condition. This is how discipleship starts with a revelation of discontentment from the trappings of the world, realising that, man, I'm, I am not righteous. I am a sinner, but I need the grace of God to redeem me. It's when the Spirit convicts us of our own fallenness that we finally come to God and say, please. And this is what he's saying. Truth reveals What's real? If you've ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, you, you will know what I'm talking about in his picture of the absence of God. He paints it as a dark grey city. And at first, it's big and vast. But as he is drawn to the light, he realises how small that darkness is. And he says, it is merely a pebble in the human world. This picture of confinement. And yet the light is freedom. Truth reveals what's real. Let's go to number two. Truth requires a response. It requires a response. Look at this. Look at this. So Jesus, the teachers bring this woman, right? And they lay her, uh, they, they stand her at Jesus' feet. But the woman has been caught in adultery. So again, jump into the scene. This isn't a polite scene, She's been caught in adultery. Because she's been caught in adultery, it means she's probably still naked. It means they've probably like grabbed her by the hair and they've probably dragged her along the dirt, the rocks. She's probably covered in mud. She's probably battered and bloodied and bruised. Her world is a mess. And there she is naked before all these people standing before Jesus, surrounded by Pharisees. And all the Pharisees are looking at her and just being like, you know, she is a terrible, sinful woman, deserving of death, deserving of being stoned based on our law. Jesus, what are you going to do with it? Jesus bends down and he writes in the ground. And then he just says a few simple words. The light comes out of his mouth and he says, let those who are without sin cast the first stone. Now what happens? One by one, they turn away. 
it's, act, let's go, it's revealing what's real in the Pharisees' hearts because they're standing there thinking they're righteous. The light comes in and the rocks go thud. Not into her head, but into the ground because they've now become acutely aware of their own sinfulness because truth reveals what's real. No longer, like, thud, 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 all over the ground until all of them are gone. And then what's left? A broken woman standing in front of him. I love that in this interaction, the Pharisees have a choice. Their sinful nature has been exposed to them. What do they do? They can either fall on their knees in front of Jesus and ask for forgiveness and walk in the light or they can run away. And interestingly, every single one of them turns and walks away. And here's the thing. Truth requires a response. What the Pharisees do when they see the light is they ignore the light and choose to go on living in the lie. All the way to the point where they hang this this light of the world on a cross. What do we do when the light comes in? How do we we react to the light? Because it requires a response. Do we ignore it? And do we say, that's good for you, that's your truth, but my truth is my truth? Who's heard that in our world today? Truth is relative. All you're doing is just ignoring the light. You're ignoring the truth and you think that you're free, but you're trapped under a bed. Do you ignore it? Are you afraid of it? I think we have a whole lot of people who know the light, but we're terrified of the light because when we come into the light, the deep, dark stuff that we love to hide is going to be exposed, just like this woman. Just like this woman. Now she's standing naked in front of all of Israel. That's a very shameful place to be. But interestingly, the fact that she's exposed is actually God's mercy because when God's mercy, when the light comes into her situation, she has an invitation to come and follow him. He sets her free. Do we hide from the light, keeping the closet closed in case someone finds out? Do we ignore the light or do we walk in the light? The woman, she didn't confess She didn't come out of that hidden place herself and say, I need healing. She was uncovered. She was exposed, but the truth still set her free. Because, watch, watch, watch. When the rocks hit the ground, has no one condemned you? Verse 11, no one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. There's consequence Nowhere in the Bible does it say there's not consequence for sin. There's consequence. When the light hits the darkness, there will be consequence. However, on the other side, we're within the bounds of consequence is mercy. Yeah, you're going to have to deal with some stuff now, but guess what? You're free. It's all out in the open. Go and leave your life of sin. It's all been done. Go and leave your life of sin. The penalty has been paid. Go and leave your life of sin. What he's saying is come and walk in the light. Come and be free. Come and walk in freedom. Come and take that, that 
the yuck that you've been hiding, it's time to move on. I've dealt with that at the cross. The light has come in. The darkness has been exposed. Now all there is is grace and there's mercy and an opportunity to come follow me and leave that life of sin. And it's such a glorious picture because what truth does Not only does it require a response, not only does it reveal what is real, but it actually releases and restores. It's the thing that breaks the chains. Truth is the thing that makes the other stuff fall off. If you've ever been living in secret sin and those chains finally fall off, it's like, oh, freedom. One of my very good friends who I've been catching up with recently, and you would know his name if I said it, was involved in a horrendous thing that he got involved in as a leader in the church years ago. The way he got out of it is the Lord came to him one night and said, the truth will set you free. And he had to face the consequence. He had to own up to that. And he copped it left, right and centre in the media. He lost everything. But do you know what he's doing now? Now he's running a mission in Port Adelaide. He's feeding the poor and he's free. He's free because the truth set him free. It releases and it restores. Go and leave your life of sin. It's an invitation to the life you were created for. We've been created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. It's an invitation to come, follow me, join me, join these disciples, join those who want to live in the light as you are in the light. DC Talk, anyone? It's that invitation. Come, follow me. Come and be free. Come and walk in the light. Come. Because I am the light of the world. I am God who has come to dwell with you. It's not about you. It's about me and all that I have done and the history of Scripture, the history of everything from the beginning of time to the end of Revelation is a God who releases people from slavery, despite the fact that we, just like the woman, are an adulterous bride. We, just like the woman, the church is an adulterous bride, constantly chasing after the things of the world. And Jesus doesn't sit there. God doesn't say, that's enough. I'm sick of you. No, He comes, He dies and hangs on a cross and pours out His blood so that the bride might be purified, so that the bride might walk in the freedom and fullness of grace and mercy and love, that we might receive that washing and walk in freedom. We are the woman, all of us. We are the Pharisees. We are the believers who say, well, we're children of Abraham, we're fine. But the invitation is to every single one of us to recognise who we are and to repent and to come and walk in the light of freedom that God has bought for us. every day to come to the light of the world. Because whom the sun sets free, they are free indeed. So we're going to sing a song in a minute. And as we do that, I want to invite you to do something. Each of you have a little candle on your chair or near your chair or maybe on the floor. Something we don't do in our Baptist world very much, is light a Christ candle. I don't know if anyone grew up in a tradition where you would start a Sunday and you'd light a candle and say, this reminds us that Jesus is the light of the world. So today, I want you to take your little candle, which represents you, 
And I want you to come to the Christ candle. And there is only one Christ, but we've got multiple candles just for ease of flow. (laughs) One fire. And as the band sings, take your time and ask yourself that question. What will I do with the light? Maybe for you, it's time to bring some stuff into the light. Maybe for you, it's time to recognise, ah, I've been walking in that sort of ignorance. Maybe for you, it's just an opportunity to thank him for his wonderful grace and mercy which sets us free. But come, let that little candle, squeeze it a little bit, because last time it fell in. Light it. And then you can just hold it in your hand and watch as we sing the song or place it on the ground or whatever it is that you want to do. But let this just stir your soul and thank God for all he has done for us in Christ because he is the light of the world. Stand your feet. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this incredible picture that we find in John 7 and 8. And then 9, that you are the one who opens our eyes, that we can see truth. We pray today, just that you would come and you would speak, Lord. And I pray that we would be like the woman, not the Pharisees. That we would be like the woman, not the crowd, who receive that mercy with joy and follow you with humble hearts and great thanksgiving. We bless you and we praise you. And all God's children said, Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.